We're looking today at Luke 14. We'll be reading verses 25 through 33 in a few moments. If you're going to follow Jesus, you better brush up on your math. Because you're going to have to perform some difficult calculations, and it's important that you get them right. For example, you'll need to know your credit score. This is Romans 4, 5. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. You'll need to count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You'll need to calculate present suffering against future glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You'll need to work up a profit-loss analysis. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. According to Luke, and we're in the midst of a study of themes in Luke, and we're looking in the last week and in future weeks, the things that help us and hurt us in this life of salvation. According to Luke, Jesus required his prospective followers to count if they were going to follow him. What were they to count? They were to count the cost. To do so is a great aid to living out God's salvation in daily life. To to neglect to count the cost can undermine even the most earnest efforts to know Christ today. Let's read Luke 14. I want to start with verse 25, and we'll go through verse 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. And anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me can't be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus' three-year preaching ministry reached the peak of popularity around the time that he spoke these words. Everywhere he went at that time, there were large crowds. Every venue was filled to capacity. Everyone was talking about him. Had his preaching ministry taken place in the 21st century, Jesus would have been at the top of everybody's what's trending now list. But Jesus understood that curiosity does not equal commitment and that interest alone will not sustain a person who chooses to follow him. There was a price to be paid by those who would align themselves with Jesus and he wanted them to know it. He didn't want any of his followers to suffer sticker shock This wasn't the first time that he brought this subject up. Back in chapter 9, we found Jesus telling the crowd, if anyone would come to me 
He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? Later, when prospective followers interviewed with Jesus, he spelled out the cost to them in graphic detail. When one man said to him, I'll go, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Excuse me. When Jesus invited another man to become his follower, and he answered, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus told him bluntly, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. When a third prospective follower said to him, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus wanted followers, not just crowds. He wasn't excited about having 5,000 spectators. He'd rather have five real followers who experienced the beauty and the power of living in the kingdom of God. But he understood that even the most sincere people will flounder and fail if they don't know what they're getting into. They need to know the cost of following him. And he spells that out dramatically in chapter 14. He wasn't saying these things to scare people away, but to keep people near when the cost of following him got, as it surely would, higher and higher. Yeah, let's collectively clear our throats right now. Thank you. You know, when you're a speaker, you notice that. Every time you clear your throat, people all over the the auditorium clear their throats. Jesus began by telling the crowd that following him would impact their relationships. This is important to understand. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, can't be my disciple. Now, understand that Jesus is not telling people to be hostile to their families or to regard them with animus. He says just the opposite elsewhere. So we can't interpret this that way. But he is saying to his followers that they must put him first in their lives. His claim over them takes priority, even over the claim family members might make. Even over the claim that their own needs and desires might make. Having a relationship with Jesus will change a person's relationships to everyone else. That's incredibly important to understand. Now to family members, that change of priorities may look like animus, even hatred. They may accuse the follower of Jesus of hating them, of being too religious, of having his or her priorities wrong. That kind of thing has happened to Christ's followers forever. But to be successful, Jesus' followers needed to know that he comes first and that it was likely that their nearest and dearest would not understand that. Jesus knew that if people didn't work this out beforehand, if they did not deliberately place his will before that of family and friends, their attempts to follow him would be derailed, not by the people who hated them, but by the people who loved them and whom they loved. 
Now keep in mind that Jesus isn't trying to drive away prospective followers. He's trying to retain sincere ones by helping them understand up front what the cost of following him will be. He wants them to know that their mother's going to say something like, you know, if you loved us, you would stay here and not go to Africa as a missionary. And dad's going to say something like, taking a lower paying job so that you can attend church. I mean, that sounds nice, but you have to be realistic. If you take a position that pays more money, you'll be able to support the church with your tithes and offerings. After all, the church wouldn't have preachers if it didn't have businessmen. They were going to hear those kind of things. But not even family can be allowed to come between a Christ follower and his master. That's a hard teaching. And it's everywhere throughout the Gospels. In verse 27, Jesus clarifies even further. And anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me can't be my disciple. His hearers, the people who are listening to him, knew what happened to a person who carried a cross. For all practical purposes, his life was over. Jesus was making clear to his hearers that if they were to follow him, life as they knew it, as autonomous and independent people, would be over. If they were to follow him, their lives would no longer be independent. They would be shared. And that meant their decisions would no longer be independent. They would be shared with him. Every decision. The person who carries a cross no longer lives to pursue wealth or status. Securing his financial future is not on the forefront of his mind. He has no reason to stockpile his possessions. Comfort is not the guiding principle of his life. And the same is true for the person who follows Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't cook the books like Enron, or like the U.S. government for that matter. He laid it all right there on the line. If you say yes to Jesus, you may sometimes have to say no to people you love and who love you. And you will certainly have to say no to yourself on many occasions. There will be a cost. And from the outside, that cost will look like more than you dare to pay. But from the inside, you'll know that it's worth it. A thousand times over. Now look at verse 28. Where Jesus begins two brief stories to clarify his point even further. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and isn't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow, and the way that is put in Greek is kind of derogatory, began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Now Jesus is asking his hearers to imagine a man who wants to build a tower. Now you could substitute build a house or an office building or a church building and you still have the same idea. Jesus used tower because in that day, big farmers would build watchtowers near their vineyards to provide security, and everyone was familiar with that practice. So he talks about building a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has the money to complete it? Now, the fact that he sits down to do his calculations, which is how the word estimate could be translated, suggests that he was going to give this serious thought 
This man isn't making an impulsive decision. The last thing he wants is to start to build and then run out of money and be the laughing stock of the whole town. And by the way, that's exactly what happened near where Karen and I ministered before we came here. Uh, a well-known televangelist from the area started to build a mammoth prayer tower, made a huge thing out of it, collected funds, and then laid the foundation and ran out of money. As far as I know, it's still sitting uncompleted 30 years later. In the second illustration, one king is about to go to war against another, whose forces vastly outnumber his own. And so he sits down, notice again, he's not acting impulsively or merely reacting emotionally, and he contemplates possible strategies. The last thing he wants to do is go to war, lose thousands of people, and forfeit his life and kingdom anyway. Now as a preacher, I notice that Jesus calls people to think, not just feel. He wants people to make a clear-headed decision about following him after they've counted the cost and considered the consequences. I wonder what Jesus would say to preachers today who try to manipulate people into making decisions based on their emotional response to some gut-wrenching story rather than to a clear understanding of the gospel. I can tell you he doesn't like it. Emotions are a good thing. They are a gift of God to be experienced, contemplated, and enjoyed. But emotionalism, making a decision based solely on feelings, that's not a good thing. The person who raises his hand to receive Jesus, not because he knows anything about Jesus or the life that he offers, but because the preacher just played his heartstrings the way Joshua Bell plays a violin, is starting off at a terrible disadvantage. When his emotions level out, which they are bound to do, which they're meant to do, He'll have nothing to sustain his decision. He'll be like the people Jesus talked about who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Those people live all around us. Now, did you notice the subtle but very important difference between these two parables? In the first one, the question is about whether the man has the resources to do something, in this case, to build a tower. Now, think of that question in the light of all that Jesus has just been saying. Perspective Christ follower, do you have the resources to follow me? That price will include changes in your most intimate relationships. It will require you to say no to your own hopes and dreams. Are you willing to pay that price? Do you have the resources necessary? But the second parable asks a different question. Not, does this man have the resources to do something, but does he have the resources to do nothing? Can he afford not to send a delegation to ask for terms of peace? In the light of Jesus' teaching, we must not only ask if we can pay the price of following him, but can we pay the price of not following him? Our calculations must include both these questions. Can we afford to follow Jesus even though the cost will be high? Can we afford not to follow Jesus since the price is going to be even higher? Now, consider the question in verse 33. In the light of 
of that question I just mentioned, can, do I have what it takes to follow Jesus? I think the answer is in verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. The implied answer there is both challenging and encouraging. Yes, you do. You have what it takes to follow Christ. Whether you have very little, a shirt on your back and not a dollar to your name, or very much, a wealth of wisdom and friends and money and power. But whether you have much or little, following Jesus takes everything you've got. Christ brings the rich and the poor the genius and the dullard, the charismatic leader and the bashful follower to the same level. Everything they have, no matter how much that is, will be just enough. He will not take less. But even everything a person has will only, only be enough if that person has Christ. Everything you have, no matter how much that is, minus Christ, will not suffice. Everything you have, no matter how little it is, with Christ is plenty. It's He in our relationship with Him that makes all the difference. Now please note that Jesus does not say Unless you give up everything you have, I will not let you be my disciple. It's not that he won't allow it. It's that we can't succeed at it. The quickest way to follow, to, to fail in following Jesus is to hold back, to give half, to leave the back door ajar. The demand he makes here is a kindness, not a cruelty. The odd thing is, that until you give up everything, and the Greek word literally means to bid farewell to, until you bid farewell to everything, you'll never really get the most out of anything. It's a paradox. Before you give everything to Jesus, you'll never be able to possess your possessions. They'll possess you. Sometimes in horrible ways but place them in Jesus' hands, put them at his disposal, and you will enjoy and appreciate them more than you ever did before. And if he takes them away, you'll say, Lord, that's all right. And you'll appreciate him more than you ever appreciated him before too. Now, does the thought of laying everything on the line, everything, frighten you? If it doesn't, you're probably not taking this seriously enough, frankly. But are you afraid of getting in too deep, of getting stuck? I've read this week something the Romanian pastor John Oros said when he was speaking at a seminary up in uh, Toronto. He was talking about how people became Christians in Romania under communist rule, which lasted until the early 2000s in Romania. When people would come forward at the end of a Romanian church service and say, I've decided to become a Christian, Oros and his fellow pastors would say, that's good, that's really good, that's great, but we want you to know that there's a price to be paid. Many things can happen to you. They would then ask the person to join a three-month catechism class before making a final decision. 
At the end of that three months, a high percentage of the catechists would choose to be baptized. But the leaders even then would tell them, it's really nice that you want to become a Christian. But when you give your testimony at your baptism, when you give your testimony, there will be informers here who will jot down your name. Tomorrow the problems will start, so count the cost. Christianity isn't easy, it isn't cheap. You can be demoted, you can lose your job, you can lose your friends, you can lose your neighbors, you can lose your kids who are climbing the social ladder. You can even lose your life. Oro says that over and over again, when he said that to people, they would look at him with tears in their eyes and would answer, if I lose everything but my personal relationship with my Lord Jesus Christ, it's still worth it. Those people knew how to count. They weren't going to suffer sticker shock. The cost of following Jesus didn't take away their joy. It increased it. Kevin Miller says it's not the cost, but it's the cost overruns that threaten discipleship to Jesus. It's when people don't count the cost up front. When they don't realize this is going to change them, change their relationships, even change their possessions, that they find themselves overwhelmed later. He points out that the Concorde jet cost 12 times more than was predicted. Uh, the Sydney Opera House came in at 15 times more than original projections. The Suez Canal cost 20 times more than the earliest estimates. The tunnel, the tunnel, the tunnel between England and France under the English Channel had a construction cost overrun of 80% and a financing cost overrun of 140%. And in Boston, by the time the big dig was over, the project cost 275% more than the city had budgeted. But in following Jesus, there is absolutely no reason for cost overruns because we already know what it will cost. Exactly everything we have and are. And it's worth it. A million times over, it's worth it. Now let's pray. Father God, I ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. I ask you by your spirit to help us see what we can't see, to calculate what we're not smart enough to calculate, and to see that Jesus is worth it. And that our worth comes from him. Lord, help us to do that, even as we gather around your table this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's sing together. We're going to stand and we'll...